Please stand for the reading of God's word as you are able. Our text this morning is Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. This can be found in your pew Bible on page 616. Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Please be seated. It is a pleasure now to introduce Zane Pratt. Zane is the Vice President for Global Training at the International Mission Board, and for 20 years he served as an IMB church planter and regional leader in Central Asia. He has served as the Dean of the Billy Graham School at the Southern, the- at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he currently serves as an Associate Professor of Christian Missions. He earned a bachelor's degree from Duke University, a master's degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he is a Ph.D. candidate at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the co-author of Introduction to Global Missions and a contributor to Theology and Practice of Missions. He is a very strong voice in the world of missions, and so we are thankful to have you here with us, Zane. Please come and share. It is very good to be with you. Thank you for your warm welcome. I would like to um, ask that before we get into the word, that we go first to God in prayer. So please join me in prayer. Father, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. That we are powerless in ourselves, either to change ourselves or to change the world. We're very grateful to you that you have not left us alone, but you have given all who trust in Jesus the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit can do what we could never do. The Holy Spirit can enable us to understand your word. The Holy Spirit can use your word like a a surgeon's scalpel to uh, cut out of us all that is displeasing to you. The 
Holy Spirit can use your word to heal us, to change us, and to empower us to be effective for you in the world that you've placed us in. So, Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would do his work in us and that this time around your word would have eternal consequences. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a common feature of our human nature to think in terms of us versus them. Uh, We're comfortable with people who are like us. We get scared of people who are not like us. And we can divide the human race in any number of ways. We can divide along the lines of, of race, along the lines of social or economic class, national origin, a language background. We can think of people in different groups and find ourselves thinking that our primary responsibility is to us, to our group, the others we can simply ignore at best or dislike at worst. Now, the Bible acknowledges the reality of distinctions among human beings. It actually explains how they came into being and even describes the role of some of those distinctions in God's plan for the ages. But the Bible does it in ways that overturn human convention, that overturn our wisdom and our normal human expectations. And the passage we just read is one of the many that points to God's agenda that is quite different from the normal human agenda. In order for us to understand it, though, we really need to place it in context. Uh, One of the things that that I teach is the interpretation of Scripture, and and one of the points I make over and over again is only interpret things in context. That means a word only has meaning in the context of a sentence, a sentence in the context of a paragraph, a paragraph in the context of a chapter, in the context of a book, in the context of the whole Bible. So what I would like for us to do is to consider the biblical narrative and how the whole theme of the nations and peoples of the earth gets developed to bring us to this point in the book of Isaiah. Only then can we be in a position to understand the surprising twist that God presents us through Isaiah, in many ways overturning normal human expectations. And we'll then go on to consider how the Lord Jesus used this passage in the Gospels. I'm sure you recognize that it's a passage he quoted when he cleansed the temple. And then consider how this passage should shape our attitudes and our behaviors. First, let's think about the whole narrative of Scripture and how the theme of the nations and peoples of the earth gets developed through it. God created the ethnic and linguistic diversity of the human race, but he did it as an act of judgment. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Uh, After the singular deliverance that God had given to Noah and his family, Uh, They began once again to multiply, but they did not fill the earth and subdue it as God had commanded. Instead, they said, let's stick together. Let's build a tower to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the earth. And so in response to this arrogance and disobedience on the part of the human race, God scattered, diversified, separated the languages of the human race. And I can tell you, as someone who has served overseas, on behalf of all of my colleagues, that we're pretty mad about that. That it is these people who made us go through the experience of language learning, which is hard. And while I'm sure there will be some people from that era in heaven, we're all going to surround them and have a, have a talking with them. Because this, this, this made our lives much harder. Nevertheless, you have in Genesis 11 a human race that is now diversified, scattered, separated, and different. Immediately in Genesis chapter 12, you have God focus in on one man, the man Abraham. And so it seems like 
God's no longer looking at the whole earth. He's looking at just one man and his family. And yet, in the promise that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the whole family, what we hear over and over again is the same promise that God's intention is that through that family, he will bless all the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And so God is narrowing in, not because he doesn't care about the rest of the world, because he's putting a plan in place to bless the entire world. He made it clear from the start that his goal was all nations and all peoples to receive his blessing. Now, in the captivity in in, in Egypt and then the exodus from Egypt, God took the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and forged them into into a nation. And at Sinai, he gave them his law, and parts of that law were designed to keep them distinct from the nations around them and pure from corruption that would come from excessive uh, mingling with the nations around them. God knew that he was bringing his people into a land where they would be surrounded by people with abominable practices. Who, who had complete disregard both for God and for humanity. And so he did a number of things that kept them distinct, uh, even things that symbolically showed God's concern that his people be holy, separate, and distinct from the other nations in the separation ordinances that he gave them. But even here, his focus was still on the nations. And so even as God made his people one people, to be separate morally and spiritually from the peoples. He made it clear in passages like Deuteronomy 4 that his intention in doing that was that the peoples around would see them and be drawn to worship the great God who had given his people such excellent laws, who had created a people who really did reflect what their God was like. When we come to the Psalms, it becomes clear that God, in fact, intends to be worshipped by all nations. Psalm 67 is just a representative passage when it, when it issues the summons, let all the peoples praise you. That's not all people praise you. It's not just a collective of individual humans. The word there is peoples, distinct people groups. And God's desire is that every people group on earth give him the worship and honor and glory that's due his name. And then when we come to the prophets in the Old Testament, we, we have uh, both realism and hope. Uh, The realism of the prophets is that the people over and over again have failed, over and over again have disobeyed God's word, over and over again have broken God's covenant, that they have shown what's in their hearts and their, their, their inability to stay faithful and true to the God who has over and over again shown them mercy. But at the same time, the prophets hold out a promise, a hope. That a day is coming, the day of the Lord, in which God himself will step into human history and make things right. It becomes clear as the prophetic ministry continues that that day will be the day of Messiah. That God himself will become a man who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king to redeem his people. It becomes clear that this will be the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that in that day, God will not just pour out his spirit temporarily on a few individuals, but that in fact the whole people of God will be the recipients of the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit permanently. And at the same time, it becomes clear that that day is going to be the day that the nations are gathered to worship God. The ingathering of the nations is as much a feature of the day of the Lord as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the two are wedded together. And so you have again and again this this promise that God's 
commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through them all the peoples on earth would be blessed would be fulfilled in that day when God visits the earth in judgment and redemption. Now, the problem that also has to be addressed by the prophets is that Israel had taken God's requirement that they be separate and distinct and turned it into a justification for racism and a superiority complex. I mean, I think this comes through most clearly in the book of Jonah, where God sends an Israelite prophet to go preach to their worst enemies. And Jonah doesn't want to go, not because he is afraid of the Ninevites. He doesn't go because he's afraid that the Ninevites will repent and God will be merciful. And the last thing in the world he wants is mercy on his enemies. And so, in fact, Jonah is actually a, a treatise against racism and bigotry on the part of the people of God who choose who they want to be saved and who they don't want to be saved. The funny thing is that the Israelites in many ways had ignored the real point of the separation that God had had commanded, namely that they be a visible sign of what God is like, living in holiness and purity before the world, and instead had simply used it as an excuse to regard themselves as better than everyone else. With this context then, we're able to look at and consider the surprising twist that we find in Isaiah chapter 56. Now, Isaiah 56 is addressed to two groups of people, to eunuchs and and to foreigners. And both of these are outsiders. These are them. These are not us. Eunuchs, in fact, were excluded from the congregation by the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. And foreigners were, well, foreign and regarded as a threat. And what God is saying in this passage is that those people that you regard as outsiders, they can be my people too. So eunuchs, even though excluded at that time from the assembly of Israel, would have an everlasting place in it. And and isn't it interesting, in consequence of that, that the first recorded Gentile convert to Jesus in the book of Acts is an African eunuch from Ethiopia, the first one outside of the Jewish nation who professed faith in Jesus and, in fact, is regarded as the founder of a burgeoning church on the African continent. Now, foreigners could join themselves to the people of God even in Isaiah's day. Remember, the point of the separation ordinances had been to keep Israel pure, not to keep non-Israelites away from God. And even in the Old Testament law, there are repeated provisions for being kind and hospitable to the alien and the stranger who is in your midst. There was the example when the Israelites came out of Egypt of a mixed multitude of other nations joining them and apparently absorbed into them. And there's glorious examples like Ruth of foreign pagans who were accepted into Israel because she committed herself to the God of Israel. So it, it always been, had been possible, and in fact, in the centuries after Isaiah, these would be codified into a fairly complex set of rabbinic regulations for how one could convert to Judaism. But what this means is that while, in fact, there are insiders and outsiders in God's mind, the distinction has nothing to do with race, nationality, or physical condition. What God looks when he sees the people of the earth are those who love God, keep his covenant, 
and live to please him, and those who do not. And so we have here eunuchs who, because of physical condition, are not allowed into the inner recesses of the temple, and yet who are promised because they are the kind of people who delight to please God, who seek to fulfill some of the signs of the covenant like the Sabbath, uh, who, keep, who hold fast to his covenant, that they are given a memorial that's better than children. And these foreigners who, again, who want to please God, who love him and love his name, that they are made as much the people of God as those physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And once again, as in the Psalms, the point of it all was worship and prayer. The point is, they will be welcome into my house, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, prayer represents our greatest intimacy with God. It is in prayer that we most fully enjoy now a foretaste of what we will enjoy forever when we are with him face to face. Prayer, in fact, summarizes what we do in worship. So it's no mistake that the Church of England, after the Reformation, named their new worship book the Book of Common Prayer. We are praying together as we join together to worship. Prayer really is at the heart of having a relationship with the living God. And so Isaiah could say on God's behalf, my my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations because all the peoples and types of peoples and groups of peoples of, of the earth are going to be welcome into the house of God to enjoy a relationship with him in prayer. God's design all along was to be known and worshiped by all the peoples of the earth And there is no group, no race, no nation or people that's excluded from that. This then helps us understand what Jesus was talking about when he quoted this passage as he cleansed the temple. You remember the setting? He had just entered Jerusalem. We we, we call it the triumphal entry. He came into the temple. He'd been there before. He knew what to expect. And what he found was that the only place in the temple that Gentiles were allowed had been turned into a marketplace. You'll remember that the temple is a series of sort of concentric courts, and each one represents greater and greater exclusivity. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles, anyone could go, but beyond that only Israelites can go. Well, in order to worship in the temple, you needed animals for sacrifice. Also, to pay temple tax, you had to have a special currency because the common secular currency of the day had an image of the emperor on it, and you couldn't bear any, take anything with an image into the temple. And so what the uh, authorities, the powers that be, decided was, well, we need a place to buy animals and to change money. Let's just put it in the court of the Gentiles, because who cares about them anyway? That's essentially what was being communicated. So the one place where a Gentile could draw near to God physically became a zoo, became a place where no prayer could happen because there was so much distraction from the animals and the buying and the selling. And Jesus saw that and was furious. Jesus righteously felt wrath about what he saw. The Gentiles were effectively being denied access to God in prayer. And and Jesus, even though his major focus had been on the house of Israel, would not tolerate that. Even though Jesus focused on his own people in his lifetime. The nations were on his mind. And as soon as his death and resurrection had been accomplished, the purposes of God literally exploded onto the global scene. That's what this passage is telling us. God has always had an intention that his people, 
be made up of folks from every kind of people you can imagine on earth. That whatever categories we may create in our minds, whatever groups of people we may hate or fear or just prefer not to be around, God's saving purposes extend to every type of people on earth. And his intention, an intention that we've discovered in Revelation is fulfilled, is that he be prayed to and worshipped by all such folks. So how should this shape our attitudes and our behavior in Wheaton, Illinois, in the 21st century? Well, first, before we talk about the peoples, I have to ask this question. Do you love God and hold fast to his covenant? Because remember, the only categories that matter in God's mind are those that know him and those that don't. In New Testament terms, that means, have you repented of your rebellion against God and put your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? In a group this size, I I cannot assume that everyone here already knows the Lord Jesus. And so let me simply remind you of the gospel, that God is a holy God. God is a just and righteous God who hates every form of sin and evil and who rightly and justly judges every rebellion against him. But this God is also a kind and merciful God who shows love even to rebellious, undeserving sinners. That we, in fact, as a human race, every one of us fall in that category of rebels against God. That all of us have turned our backs on God and gone our own way. That every one of us deserves judgment and wrath from God. But that God, in his mercy, rather than simply giving us the judgment we deserve, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived the life we should have lived, and then died the death we deserve to die, bearing the wrath of God against our sin in our place as our substitute. That our Lord Jesus rose again from the dead, the conqueror of sin and death in hell, and that he now graciously offers a pardon to all who will repent of their rebellion, turn their backs on their rebellion, and put their trust in Jesus alone as their Savior. And so if there is anyone in this room who has not done that, the first thing you need to do is to be right with God by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. And there are many here in this congregation and among the the pastors and elders who can talk to you and help you if you want to talk to somebody about that. But for those of us who do know Jesus, the question comes to us, how do we divide people in our minds? Do we divide people up by physical condition, by race, by class, by status? by ability, by popularity or appearance, by nationality or language? Is there a group of people you would prefer to exclude from your presence? Is there a group of people you prefer didn't move into your neighborhood, come to your church, start working beside you, or be a student at your school? Do you see people the way the world does in those categories of those I want around me and those I don't? Or do you see people in God's categories, those who are in the covenant and those who are not, those who trust Jesus and those who need to trust Jesus. Remember that God intends for his house, including this house, to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And God has given us the commission to see the world the way he sees it, as one who loves every kind of people on earth. Does the thought of this church being a house of prayer for all peoples motivate you to mission? Or move you to fear? Third, what are you doing then to draw the nations to prayer to the triune God? First thing we need to do in this category is to love and embrace those whom God has brought here. Remember the God sovereign. 
God's in charge of what happens. Yes, it's true that people make real decisions and they're responsible for those decisions, but God is the master orchestrator behind the scenes who is making sure that everything accomplishes his purpose. So those people who live near you, you know why they live near you? Because God put them there. And you know why he put them there? To be near you. That's why they don't count as unreached peoples, because you're there. And he put you near them and them near you, not so you could be afraid of them, not so you could, could try and somehow avoid them, but so that you could love them, so that you could be hospitable to them, so that you could extend the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We need to, whatever your political background is, whatever your convictions on this, on this are, is how people got here, the fact is whoever is near you is near you by the design of the living God. And they are near you in order for you to be the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus to them. Both in caring for them in practical ways and in extending to them the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to love every kind of people on earth because God does. And if we don't, we're in sin. If there is any group of people we don't love, then we're in rebellion against God. You remember that scripture actually is fairly, it limits who we have to love, right? The only kind of people we have to love are the body of Christ, our neighbors, and our enemies. So um, anybody who falls outside that category, you can ignore. So if you meet somebody outside that category, oh wait, you've met them, they're your neighbor. You get the idea. God has commanded us specifically to love the unlovely, specifically to love those whom we might fear. And we need to recognize that what's happening today in this country is happening under the gracious hand of God. But then we also have to take the gospel to those who are far off. It remains true that there are literally billions of people, 2.8 billion as best as we can tell, who have absolutely no access to the gospel today. These are people among whose people group or, or people group segment there is no effective witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means those people could be born, grow up, live, and die without ever meeting a Christian, without ever seeing a Bible, without ever encountering a church, without ever hearing a radio broadcast, without any exposure to the good news of salvation in Jesus' name. And God has given us the responsibility of taking it to them, because that's not going to change unless we take the initiative to make it changed. They will stay unreached unless we go to them. And by the way, don't be so narrow in your categories of who you think might be able to take the gospel to them. I think we tend to think that, okay, he's talking now to the Bible or religion majors from the college across the street. The rest of us can just tune out at this point. That is so wrong. Um, As a matter of fact, right now, most of the people on earth who have no access to the gospel live places you can't go as a traditional missionary. You have to go with some other profession. And so the kinds of people we need to take the gospel to the unreached are doctors and nurses and engineers and agriculturalists and business people of all kinds, IT specialists, sports coaches, one of the best platforms I ever had for ministry overseas was coaching the sport of American football with Central Asian college students. Uh, You name it, if it's a profession, you can leverage it for the sake of the gospel in places where a traditional missionary cannot go. 
So yes, we need those who are the Bible translators and the Bible scholars. We also need every other kind of profession to get the gospel to people that we can't reach through traditional means. And also, lest you think that I'm only talking to young people, uh, you will note the color of, of this beard. It is now white. It was not always white. It was once red. And what I've discovered is that when it, now that it's white, I can get away with a whole lot more than when it was red in most countries around the world. The simple fact is that most of the world has a far more biblical attitude toward age than ours does. For some reason, our society seems to think that it's, it's a big deal and a good thing to be young. There is no accomplishment in being young. There is a significant accomplishment in surviving to the age of some of us in this room. <laughs> and much of the world looks at things that way and actually respects age. And so I have found that I can share the gospel more freely in much of the unreached world with a white beard and a bald head than I could with a red beard and hair on top of my head. And so the aged who are still physically capable, there is certainly a place for you as well. Whoever you may be, though, what I would urge you as a congregation to do is, first of all, pray. We're talking about a house of prayer because prayer is how our own relationship with God is nurtured and strengthened. And prayer is also the most effective tool we have in the advance of the gospel. God uses our prayers to accomplish incredible things. And the gospel only advances in the power of prayer. I would also encourage you to continue, as you've been doing, to give generously to the cause of missions. Uh, You guys have an amazing mission force on the field. Continue to support them generously. I would encourage you to be a sending church that doesn't just react to those who, on their own, think, hmm, I think I want to be a missionary, but instead you actually sort of nudge each other. Uh, You go up to somebody and say, hmm, I see uh, a skill set in you and some relationship gifts in you that I think God could use to take the gospel to Obscuristan, and why not? And so you actually begin spurring one another on to greater missions sending. And I would encourage you to honestly ask yourself, where would God have me go? It's not, am I to go? You've already been commanded. That command extends to all of us. But where and how am I to go to take the gospel to people who have never heard it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this congregation of people and for the evidence of their commitment to the gospel and their commitment to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. Father, I pray you would raise up more and more people out of this congregation to go where the gospel is completely unknown now. I pray that you would keep this assembly of your saints on their knees, undergirding all that they they send people out to do in prayer, and continue to generously give of their resources to, to cause it to happen. And Father, I pray that everyone here would ask themselves honestly and with integrity before you, not should I go, but where should I go, and how should I fulfill the Great Commission. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.